I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience this week from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington, it's Livewire with comedian and writer Josh Gondelman, author Clyde W. Ford, and endurance athletes Caitlin Gerben and Alex Borsa. With music from the Lois Pair and our fabulous house band, I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Uh, hi, and welcome to Livewire, everybody. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello, and thanks, everybody, for coming out to the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington. All right, our theme uh, this week is The Last Laugh. It kind of relates to all the guests this hour. Um, and I was thinking about it driving over here today, and I was thinking, like, it kind of, it's kind of a bummer when someone gets the last laugh on you. Oh, yeah. And you know you're just, like, beat. It's worse when an animal gets the last laugh on you, which is a situation I am currently dealing with. Are you having an interaction with a hyena? No. It is a snake that is somewhere in my house and has been unaccounted for for going on six days now. Oh, no. So uh, last week I was vacuuming and I was in the dining room area, and quite to my surprise, coming out from under the like baseboard radiant heat thing, yeah. a really pretty large garter snake came <laughs> wriggling out onto the floor. Okay. Probably brought in by our cat, because she goes out and catches snakes, and then sometimes we leave the door open, she'll come back in. And what I should have done in that moment was I should have grabbed a paper towel and grabbed the snake and got it out of the house. Ooh. Did you do, you didn't no, do No, I didn't, because I live in the modern hellscape that is social media awareness. I went and got my phone to videotape it, to put it on Twitter. <laughs> and in the time it took me to go get my phone and come back, the snake had beelined it for the corner of the dining room where this baseboard heating system intersects. And the snake had gotten all the way up in there to where I could not reach it or even see it. So I was like kind of bummed out, but I also thought like, this is a snake. I'm a grown man, allegedly. 
<laughs> I can outwit this animal. So I went full Wiley Coyote on it. I got a card table and I laid it on its side and I blocked it into the corner and then I stuffed all the gaps with towels. And then the piece de resistance was I went, we have a motion activated camera as part of the security system on the front porch. Okay. I unplugged it, took it down from the front porch and put it in my snake containment zone, <laughs> set it on high and then made it so that if it ever went off, it would forward the information to my watch. I was so excited about this plan, it almost made me happy that the snake had escaped into the radiator. And I renamed the camera Snake Cam. Aww. It used to be called Front Porch. I had to go into the directions of the camera and learn how to rename the camera so it could be called Snake Cam. But at least three days went by with absolutely no appearance of the snake. And finally, at some point, my wife was like, she started slowly breaking things down, like she took the table away, <laughs> but she left the camera, and then she cleaned up the towels, and then finally one day she was like, she just came over to me like, you know, <laughs> like a, a coach realizing that like this kid doesn't have it. She kind of patted me on the shoulder. She was Aww. like, I'm taking the snake cam out. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a really good time to get our guests out here. We got a couple of people waiting off stage. Who, they've gotten the last laugh on anyone who doubted them and their ability to complete something called the Infinity Loop, which is a mountain climbing and trail running route involving Mount Rainier. Honestly, it should probably not be legal. Anyway, they did it, somehow becoming the first women ever to complete the route. Please welcome Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben to Livewire. Alex and Caitlin, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. I think I, I read an article in the paper about, about you guys completing this infinity loop, but uh, once I started telling other people about it, I found out this is a very big deal in the sort of like outdoor athletics world. What is, what is the infinity loop? Can you explain it? Okay, so... And this is Caitlin talking Caitlin. for the radio audience. Um, a very basic concept, you climb Mount Rainier twice, and so you go up one route, go down the other route, and then you run half of the Wonderland Trail, which circumnavigates the mountain, and then you go back to your starting point, and you go back up the mountain, back down the mountain, and around the other side. So you make an infinity symbol around Mount Rainier. That's the proper response from the crowd, by the way, which is horror. So you end up climbing Mount Rainier twice in the process? Correct. And then, and then running about how many miles on this loop? About 100 miles. About 100 miles. Whose idea was this? <laughs> Alex? Well, I wasn't sure we could complete it, but I heard about this back in 2016 when it was first completed. Um, this route was a dream of Chad Kellogg, who unfortunately never had a chance to complete it before he passed away. Um, but in 2016, it was first completed um, by two guys in Seattle. And I remember reading an article and was like, whoa, this is, this is like next level. I don't even, I can't, couldn't even comprehend it. Um, so over the last couple of years, a few more people have completed it and I got more excited about it. Um, yeah, I got more motivated by it. So this year I was like, all right, I think this is the year that we give this a go. And had you been like hiking and jogging before this or was this your first time? <laughs> Cause this is an ambitious first time out if you ask me. The 
favorite points have felt like my first time doing that, but <laughs> we've done some stuff like this before, um, mountaineering, climbing, ultra running, but this was the first time we've done a route of this uh, magnitude. I mean, like, we're laughing about all this right now, but we also, like, one of our, like, really serious conversations when we were just starting to go up the climb was about um, how comfortable we were with our, our own skill set on this route and basically, like, what our risk tolerance would be for doing something like this. And we decided that, okay, we have this crazy goal, we have this really ridiculous time goal that we're trying to meet, um, but we need to agree to be honest with each other and, and communicate and make sure that we're not doing anything stupid just because we're trying to beat some time. What's the time lapse from start to finish? How long does that take? It took us four days. Four days together. Yes. Two of y'all. Wow. How, how, do you, like, how do you even begin to train for something like this? I mean, I think like, it's actually been years in the making, and Alex said that she's been interested in doing this kind of a route for a long time, but both of us have completed um, numerous 100-mile races in the mountains. Um, we've both climbed Mount Rainier numerous times and also climbed a lot of other mountains together, especially this spring. Um, so there, I guess in terms of preparation, there wasn't really anything specific we did for this other than just the stuff. Your normal life yeah. of being people who are randomly climbing mountains? I mean, I guess, more or less. So your resting fitness level is that you could climb Mount Rainier twice and run 100 miles around it. That's just like, you're like, block out Saturday. We're going to do that. I'm sorry to be so amazed, but I guess I just figured like, that you must have had to just radically change your life in the training phase leading up to this, but it was, this was, you were already pretty much at this level of fitness? We both work um, full-time jobs, <laughs> but we try to make, you know, Saturday and Sunday count every weekend, so we, we do these, <laughs> these big things. I mean, to be clear, so, like, some context for, like, completing 100 miles. I did a 100-mile race at the end of June, and I had done two other longer races, about 70 and 80 miles each in the spring. And so I've been kind of training and, and building up to be able, being able to do that. Um, and Alex has a similar um, kind of trajectory, but with a little bit more mountain stuff. Okay. So you were the mountain expert, and you were the trail running expert? That's probably fair to say. But we both have... A combination of both, for sure. Before we started, Alex actually made a column, columns of our strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> what was in the strengths? Uh, strengths for me was uh, long distance and speed. Strengths for Alex was no sleep. And ability <laughs> and to <mountains>. suffer. <laughs> and learning to su what? suffer? Yeah, like being really good at suffering. <laughs> what was in the weakness category? Uh, me wanting to go too fast. <laughs> That was your, that's like when, you, when you're at a job interview and they're like, what's your greatest weakness? You're like, I'm a perfectionist. That sounds like a fake answer. Oh, hold on. We got to take a, a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We're talking to Infinity Loop uh, climbers, runners, uh, Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben. We'll be back with more with them in just a minute. Stay with us. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts, that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. 
Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and, uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. All right, welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. We are at the Neptune Theater in Seattle this week talking to Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben. They completed the Infinity Loop uh, of Mount Rainier, which involved climbing it twice and running a uh, hundred miles or so around the base. And you guys almost basically had to stop at one point, right? If I understand right, because the, was it the weather conditions? Yeah, so on our second summit up, so we basically climbed once and descended and then ran about 30 miles of the trail. And um, we slept, at this point that had taken us a little under 24 hours, I think, to do that whole section. So we get back to our car, which we left our car at the parking lot. Um, and we climbed inside, slept for about an hour and a half, woke up, and then started to go up the second climb. And, and the weather had turned around. And we knew before we started that there was a small chance for, for a little bit of weather to move in. But it seemed very manageable um, based on the forecast. And over the course of the 24 hours that we were out on the mountain and the trail, things deteriorated. Um, so we started climbing up. Um, and then we made it up basically to base camp, that camp mirror, and had to turn around. And we thought we were done. We thought we quit at that point. So then what happened? How'd you, how'd you end up finishing? Um, so we descended back down, back to the, the main lodge, back to our car. So we waited it out for 12 hours of just sitting around and waiting. Um, so at 8 p.m. that night, we saw the forecast. It looked a lot better. So we decided to go back up and for our second summit. Yeah. Um, and... And from then on, we had decent weather and good conditions. So you got through it. But weren't you also, like, sleeping on the trail for, like, 15-minute increments or something? Like, what was, yes. the, what was the end of this thing like? I mean, you must have been, like, so, so exhausted. Yeah, so by the time we, we made it up, uh, finally, we made our second summit and then descended. Uh, and our plan was to try to take a few hours of sleep after, like, before we start the next portion of the trail, which is about 70 miles. And we, we are honestly just too excited, and there was too much, like... I've had that happen. I know what that's around. like. <laughs> so you just climbed Mount Rainier twice, so and we you were going down, about to run 70 miles, and you were just like, uh, Christmas came early. Let's go for it. Forget the nap. Yeah, but we wanted to sleep. That, that was our plan to sleep, and we couldn't fall asleep. So we set off, and we brought some gear with us to be able to... Uh, try to stay warm, um, and basically figured we would start moving until we needed to sleep, and then we curled up on the side of the trail a few times together, <laughs> took a few naps, and then kept moving. Did people go by you when you were sleeping on the trail? Did they like think that you were not okay? You know, I'm a little disappointed in that. A, a lot of people went by us, and no one stopped to ask if we were okay. <laughs> 
Uh, we are talking to Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben here on Livewire. They completed something called the Infinity Loop. Um, what was the significance of being the first female team to do this? I mean, uh, it may sound a little cliche, but I mean, were you hoping to also just be kind of an example to other people, particularly other women, that like this is something that can be done? Have you been inspired to do the infinity loop, random audience member? No? All right. I mean, I think it's a really cool after product, but I, I didn't go into this thinking that, like, I wanted to do this to inspire women and find a woman partner and go and do this. I asked Caitlin because she's just a strong person, and I wanted her to, be, to do this with me because I knew I could trust her and I knew that we could do it successfully together. So I think it's really cool that we were the first women team, but I wouldn't say that that was the drive behind yeah. us at all. She was the only person crazy enough to do it with you. More or less. Basically. <laughs> How did you guys celebrate? <laughs> so when we were like getting towards the finish, I, basically throughout the whole four days of us out on, on the mountain and the trail, we daydreamed about how awesome our finish was going to be because initially we thought we'd finish like in the middle of the day. It was on a weekend. There'd be people everywhere. We thought we might have friends come see us finish and everything. And we didn't come in until 2 a.m. So there was nobody there. Um, Except our husbands. Our husbands, <laughs> our husbands were there, which was awesome. Um, and they had bought us some champagne. So that was sitting on the stairs. But we were just so tired, we just zombied right past them and basically <laughs> laid down on the stairs, which was our finishing point. <laughs> we took like a two-hour, three-hour nap, and then we both went to work the next day. What? What? <laughs> okay, that has to be a first. That must add something to the record that you went to work the next day. That is incredible. Well, congratulations. It's amazing what you've done, and it is a really cool example, whether you're trying to set it or not. Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben, right here on Livewire. We'll be back with more with them in just a moment. Um, one of the things we like to do here at Livewire, Alex and Caitlin, is we try to get to know our guests in a very real way. Uh, and so to that end, we have this little exercise we do. Uh, here on stage with me, I have an actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it. We consider these to be the essential questions of our time. We call this the jar of truth. Okay, since you guys are these amazing outdoor athletes, we actually have created a special edition of the Jar of Truth. We just had this brought in from REI. As you can see, it's made of smart wool. It wicks away all of the sweat on the questions. All right, here's how it's gonna work. Uh, one of you guys pull a question out. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, is gonna read it. We wanna get your honest answer to the Jar of Truth outdoorsy edition. All right. Okay, Alex and Caitlin, what is the most superfluous item you would argue is worth its weight in your pack? Wine. <laughs> what are we talking here, like a magnum or a little like juice box size? Uh, they're like the cans are really nice. Uh, how about you, Alex? Is there something that you pack that's you know not efficient, but you're just like, I gotta have this? Beer. <laughs> Not the answers I was expecting from two elite athletes. All right, one more from the outdoorsy jar of truth before we say goodbye to Alex and Caitlin. Okay, 
last question. Does anyone really want to see cairns, those rock sculptures, or is it just making graffiti out of nature? You know what I'm talking about? Those like piles of rocks that people do. So cairns can be very helpful to mark a path when you're moving off trail, especially. But also be wary of cairns because cairns can lie, and people when? sometimes put cairns just because they were there, and just because someone was there doesn't mean you should be there. I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are they used? Are, are, is their original intention to be something directional? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am not doing this for effect. I literally thought it was a decoration and you just did them because they were cool. Like how many rocks can I balance on other rocks? You're I, the one building the rock here. It's in the middle of the Hundreds of people have died because of me. This was not how I was expecting the outdoorsy jar of truth to go. Well. Alex and Caitlin, thank you so much. Alex Borsuk and Caitlin Gerben, everybody. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Hey, it's Luke. Stay with us because coming up, we've got Josh Gondelman, who may hold the record for nicest person of all time. So I carried in my backpack a can of chicken soup. And if anyone felt like they're having a bad day, I'd be like, here, you, you should have this. Josh will talk about his new book, Nice Try, coming up on Livewire. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank, along with Elena Passarello. We're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle this week, talking about the last laugh. Our next guest is a writer who, like me, lives up in Bellingham, Washington, just north of here. But unlike me, he happens to be the son of the first black systems engineer to work at IBM back in the 1940s. It is a remarkable story that he tells in his much-anticipated new book, Think Black, a memoir. Please welcome Clyde W. Ford to Live Wire. Clyde, welcome to Livewire. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, um, Elena. So this book is so fascinating. Um, your father, Stanley, was handpicked by Thomas J. Watson, who was the, the president of IBM, to work at IBM and be the first African-American to have the kind of job he had, right? Why, why or how did that come together? How did your dad get on his radar? Yeah, so my dad was the first black software engineer in America. And um, it got on his radar, I think, because Watson was looking for ways to divert the attention away from some of the other things that IBM was involved in. Really? Yes. 
and uh, some of those other things weren't so wonderful. You know, I was just listening to a program um, this morning on the radio about a, um, a, a protest that was going on against Amazon in Boston. And it was a protest by um, Jewish activists for peace. And one of the things they were saying in that protest, they were talking about IBM's early involvement in the Holocaust. And that's one of the things that when I started to ask that question, why was my dad hired? The answer I came up with was that he was hired to divert attention away from IBM's involvement in the Holocaust. Before that, eugenics. After my dad was working for IBM, IBM's in deep involvement in apartheid. And so I have to say, it was a hard book to write as I began to learn more about the company my dad worked for, that I worked for, and about the role of technology in race, race relationships, diversity, and some of the issues that we're still trying to address to this very day in the world of high tech. Was there really a moment where there's this computer, I guess a very early computer, is it called the 404? 407. The 407. IBM 407. That you talk about your dad trying to complete this test on where he basically brought a, this computer or a bunch of versions of it to the church and had the ladies from the church doing computer programming in like the Bronx? Yeah. And so one of the things my dad relied on was his community. We grew up in the Williamsbridge area of the Bronx that was really a kind of an upward striving African-American community. And when my dad got in trouble in terms of not being able to complete what he needed to do at work, he sought help out from his community. And one of the bulwarks of that community was Trinity Baptist Church on two, uh, 224th Street in the Bronx. And so there was then a source of people who could support and help him. And I was talking to somebody backstage in the green room who was saying, you know, one of the things I learned about is that women were very early on involved in the early days of computing. Sure, and the Apollo the, 11, right? The, the... One of the reasons there, even before Apollo 11, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, is that women during World War II had developed skills as switchboard operators, and the early computers were programmed by plugging wires in here and there. And so women, like the women in the church, had those skills that my dad could rely on. We're talking to Clyde W. Ford. His new book is Think Black, a memoir. It's about uh, his father's time at IBM and then later your time at IBM. Right. Um, when did you start to see your dad and how he was moving through the world differently? Because you write about how when you were a little kid, you kind of idolized him the way a lot of sons idolize their fathers. But at some point, your perspective on, on how he was making his way in the largely white world really changed. Yeah, and so I'm wearing a dashiki right now. Yes. Okay? And, and, you know, a dashiki is, uh, and, and I wear it to remind myself of when this became popular. It was in the 60s, late 60s, and it was during that time. It was an expression of kind of African-American self-identity. And I think it was as I was growing into that, as, uh, as a young man and realizing that there was something I was reaching for as a young black man that my father wasn't reaching for in terms of how he was working uh, in a very corporate, very white world. And that's when I began to start to see myself very differently from my dad. Um, my dad, you know, and I say this in the book, and, and it was hard to really come to terms with this, but as a black man, my dad was in many ways embarrassed by his own skin color. 
and he worked in a world which reinforced that embarrassment. And I felt like that wasn't me. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be somebody who was proud of who I was, that I could grow into an understanding of my history and the things I wasn't being taught in school. Those became elements that separated me from my dad. And I remember one dramatic moment that I talk about in the, the book where my dad and I got into an argument about the Vietnam War and I had to say to him, hey, you may work for IBM, but that doesn't necessarily make you the man that I want to grow into be. Wow, that must have been really hard for him to hear. It was a very painful discussion. And then look, I went to work for IBM. Yeah. Right? And you showed up on day one in a very different outfit than your dad was wearing to work at IBM. Can you please describe oh for the radio gosh, listeners? Did I ever. So first of all, in those days, I had a lot more hair and I had a big afro, a ballooned afro. I had a hat cocked on to one side and um, I wore a, this is to IBM in the 19, this was 1970. I wore a blue pinstriped zoot suit. <laughs> There's a picture of this in the book, by the way. It is worth the price of admission just yeah. for the photo of Clyde. I wore a red, bright red turtleneck instead of a white shirt and tie. I had on platform patent leather shoes. <laughs> you write this in the book, but I mean, had you legitimately the night before seen the movie Shaft? I had. That is a serious, serious thing. The night before, it was a Monday that I went to work for IBM. The Sunday night before that, I specifically went to the movies in New York City to see Richard Roundtree in Shaft. And I was really walking out of that subway station humming Isaac Hayes' theme song to Shaft, right? Everybody and should hum that on the way into work on that, Monday, right. man. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the funny thing, Elena, as I was writing that section of the book, I had uh, YouTube, uh, that listen on repeat thing where you can just, yeah. I, had the, I had Isaac Hayes playing chef. You had to get back <laughs> into that mental state. Had, yeah, so exactly. you come into IBM in a, in a very different way than yeah. your father did, but you also showed an incredible promise uh, when it came to computing because you'd been raised around it. You were also just a precociously smart person. Uh, what was the reaction to you with your outfit and your, you know, uh, sideburns and the whole look? Oh, my God. I mean, the first reaction that I'll never forget is another um, black fellow who was there walked over to my desk, sat down, leaned over to me and said, I don't think you get it. You're working for IBM now. And he said, white shirt. If you want to do something different, a blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the reaction was, and, and, hey, the truth was, I wanted IBM to know, yes, I was there, but I was different. I wasn't my dad. Yeah. And they would have to deal with me on my terms, and I wouldn't deal with them on their terms. One of the things that you write about in the book is the way that white oppression, part of how it operates, is to take people who are marginalized, and in the case of your book, African slaves and African Americans, and create a system where they have to compete with each other, or maybe feel like they have to compete with each other. And it seems to be a big theme in the book. I mean, it's been described as respectability politics, things like that. How do you make sense of that? And also, how do you find grace for people who are doing the best they can, even though the way they're expressing their blackness is different than what you were doing? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think as a young man, that was a harder question for me to answer than it is now looking back. And it also is a question I was able to answer by better understanding my father. So one of the things that I became aware of is that my father had in the bottom of one of his dresser drawers, beneath his undershirts and beneath the Playboy magazines, he had an envelope that was perhaps more risque than those Playboy magazines. And, you know, I, I thumbed through the Playboys a number of times when he wasn't home, but I discovered that what was in that envelope, Luke, were copies of the IBM entrance examination. Now, every so often, he would invite promising young black folks to the house and tell my sister and I to get lost. He would go into the bottom of that dresser drawer, pull out the envelope, sit down at a table with them, and coach them on how to pass that exam. I began to realize then, and my respect for my dad started to grow in realizing that he had his own way of dealing with the racism and the oppression that he faced. And what he was trying to do was to bring more people of color into the high-tech workspace. And so I realized then, I think I started to grow in an understanding, you can do things differently. Your reaction and your protest might be very vocal, and mine certainly was, but it could also be very subtle, as my dad's were, and I have to respect both. I mean, he ran an underground railroad for years at one of the biggest corporations in the world. Yeah. We're talking to Clyde W. Ford. His book about his father's time at IBM and also his is called Think Black, a memoir. Uh, of course, you, you only can speak for yourself, Clyde, but as a, as a person of color, we have, most of our listeners are white. I'm curious, for white people that want to try to make this country more equal and want to try to push back against the institutional and historical racism of this country, what is something, in your opinion, that people can do to be allies? Yeah, that's really great. And I think the first thing is just to talk to other people, just to have a dialogue. You know, one of the things I do, Luke, is I, is I actually go around the state of Washington for Humanities Washington. I'm on their speaking bureau, and I do a program called Let's Talk About Race. Now, most of the places I go to in Washington state, you don't find a lot of people of color. But that doesn't mean you can't talk about what the problem is. I think we don't have in this country a history of engagement around the issues that we would rather just keep in the past. I start my Humanities Washington talks by describing my time in Germany and South Africa where people there are willing to talk about what happened in the past for one principal reason, so it never happens again. Thank you. I think we have to come to that point here in the United States. You don't even have to talk to somebody of a different ethnicity or race. You can start that conversation within your family, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors. I mean, I know that everybody knows someone in their family for whom that kind of in conversation would be both difficult but very important. That's the place to start being an ally, right there. Yeah. All right, Clyde, this book is amazing. You have lived many lifetimes, and we do not have time to get all into all of them this time around, but I highly recommend people check out the book. It's called Think Black, a Memoir. It's by Clyde W. Ford. Thank you so much for being on Livewire.
Our next guest is a comedian and writer whose new book, Nice Try, had me laughing so hard in a restaurant the other day. It was frankly kind of embarrassing, and I blame him for that. He's going to make it up to me right now. He's previously worked on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He's now a writer and producer on Jesus and Marrow. Please welcome Josh Gondelman to Livewire. Hello, everyone. This is what I'm like. Uh, I'm like if a cardigan were a person. Um, I'm like the public radio of stand-up comedy, I think. I grew up in Massachusetts. I was just back visiting family, and we got to spend some time with my 95-year-old great-aunt, which is amazing. If you can hang out with a 95-year-old that's doing well, you get a pounce on that. Not literally. You'll crush her, but... You've got to seize the day, is what I'm saying. A 95-year-old that's healthy at all, that's incredible, because first of all, that's a lot of family history and knowledge in one person. And second of all, when you hang out with a healthy 95-year-old, you're going to see a level of confidence that doesn't exist anywhere else in humanity. (laughs) My 95-year-old great-aunt walks around all day like she just won an Oscar on top of Mount Everest. (laughs) That's her constantly, just unbeatable swagger, oxygen tank. That's her vibe. (laughs) The confidence comes out in different ways, too. We went out to lunch, and at the end of the meal, the waiter comes over. He says, can I offer you some dessert? We have one dessert special today. It's a slice of pumpkin pie. My great-aunt looks him in the eyes and goes, we'll have some grapes for the table. (laughs) The waiter goes, grapes? And she says, for the table. (laughs) The waiter leaves the room, presumably to quit, is what I thought was happening, just... I gotta go to law school, like my dad keeps saying. (laughs) Comes back two minutes later, three giant bowls of grapes for the table. That's right. There weren't even grapes on the menu at that restaurant. (laughs) Such is the power of 95-year-old confidence. She just thought grapes, said grapes, manifested grapes into her life. And why wouldn't she? When you're 95, you don't have a lot of time to go a bunch of different places and ask for the things they advertise. You just show up wherever people bring you, you tell the folks there what you need in your life, and you make it their problem, right? (laughs) Just like, yeah, some dessert, funny you should ask. I'd like some grapes for the table, also stamps, hard candy, and my cholesterol medication. I'm 95 years old, you're my concierge to the universe right now. I'm I'm a married person, I like that very much, even the stuff you're not supposed to like. I love having in-laws, that's real. Because to me, in-laws are just new relatives in my life who have no idea how embarrassing I used to be in the past. (laughs) I have a great dad, we have a tremendous relationship, we get along wonderfully. But now I have a father-in-law that's a new dad in my life who never had to pick me up early from elementary school because the Goosebumps book I was reading was too scary. That's a sweet new dad. (laughs) It's a big free agent pickup for this guy. I want to leave you guys with a sweet story. This is the story of the second best moment of my wedding. Best moment, not a great story. My wife and I found each other uh, in a quiet place away from the other guests after the ceremony, and we whispered to one another our social security numbers. Just (laughs) traditional Jewish wedding. You (laughs) break a glass, you whisper the social security numbers. L'chaim. 
The second best moment, that's the exciting part. That's what I want to relate to you guys tonight. And it was a, a conversation my wife and I shared on the dance floor with the Michael Jackson impersonator. We didn't set out trying to have one. It wasn't architecture, it was serendipity. We hired a DJ, and at the end of our conversation with him about what we wanted on the playlist, who was going to give toasts, he says, very cool, very smooth to the two of us. He goes, you know, in addition to my DJ services, I, uh, I also do Michael Jackson. Would you like me to do that at the wedding? And I said, I don't know what that means, but absolutely 100% I want it to happen because whatever it is, it's going to be amazing. I don't know whether you're going to dangle a baby over a balcony or turn a backyard into an amusement park, bring some zombies to life. I don't know, but whatever it is, unless it's the one thing, it's going to be incredible. So cut to the day of the wedding. Midway through the reception, the DJ steps out from behind the table where his equipment is, and he puts on a red leather jacket and a silver rhinestone glove, and we have told no one that this is about to happen. <laughs> this is our gift to the guests. They're bringing us a toaster. We're sending them home with a memory that will last a lifetime. <laughs> He's positioned my friend Will behind the DJ table. He says, Will hit it. Will hits it. Billy Jean comes on, full blast, which is a great song, but not for a wedding. <laughs> More of a paternity test anthem if you're familiar, but you don't make a playlist. For those days, you just drive in silence. <laughs> it doesn't matter, though. He's so good. He's got the hands. He's got the feet. I know I'm doing neither the hands nor the feet, but he was impeccable. And the crowd is lukewarm at best, I will say. That is a sad but true fact about the evening. People weren't super into it. Part of it was his fault, part of it was on him. Like, he didn't look a lot like Michael Jackson. Like, he was black, which didn't help. Because uh, it's an audience full of old Jews, they're picturing new Mike, not Mike Classic. You gotta read the room, dude. I'll tell you what, if he'd put on a black leather jacket, fake goatee, and done Billy Joel, my mother would have thrown her underpants at him, my father would have had a heart attack, ack, 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 ack. You guys all on board with the Billy Joel reference? If not, you ought to know by now. That's a second Billy Joel reference. Because I'm a professional, I want you to have a good night. So here's the moment. The DJ slash Michael Jackson impersonator had already put two plastic party city fedoras on me and my wife's head to heighten the ambiance of fake Michael Jackson. So he dances over to us and he takes the hat off my head and he whispers into my ear, and he puts the hat back, and he whispers again, and he dances away. And everyone is watching. So all my family members, all my friends come up to me after the song ends, and they all have questions. I mean, it's basically the same question. It's a lot of, what the hell was that about? <laughs> what was that guy doing? What was he saying? Was it advice? Was it wisdom? This is what happened, honest to goodness. He dances over to us. He takes the hat off my head. He whispers into my ear. The hat lights up. He winks. He hits the button on the hat four, five, six times. The hat does not light up. <laughs> he puts the hat back on my head, whispers, the hat used to light up, and then moonwalks across the entire room. And that was the second best moment of my wedding. So it was a pretty good wedding. Thank you guys so much. What a lovely time. That is Josh Gondelman right here on Livewire. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Ed, 
and Anne Galen of Portland, Oregon. Ed and Ann are members of the Livewire community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support, because without it, and without support from people like Ed and Ann, we would not be able to do this show. So a big, big thanks to Ed and Ann for helping make the show possible this week. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank, uh, here with Elena Passarella. We're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. We're talking to comedian Josh Gondelman. His new book is Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. And the thesis sort of seems to be that you, throughout your life, have been a very nice person and that that has sometimes been good for you and sometimes not so good, depending on the circumstances. When did you first realize you were nice? I think in high school, this is like deeply embarrassing now as an adult, but in high school I would, uh, I, I just would break my heart that some of my friends and fellow students would have a bad day. So I carried in my backpack a can of chicken soup. And if anyone felt like they're having a bad day, I'd be like, here, you, you should have this. And <laughs> they were mystified and probably uh, displeased that they now had to carry around a can of chicken soup. And there, there wasn't like a can opener nearby. It was, but that was, I was like, oh, that's like a nice thing. You, you know, chicken soup, it makes you feel good uh, in the proper context. The same as a massage, right? When you want one, you're like, great. And when you don't, you're like, yo. <laughs> no, thank you. Being a person who, who tends to be pretty nice, has that, like, how has that served you in your career as a stand-up comic, which is something that can be cutthroat, kind of um, competitive, you know? Like, how, how do you navigate that world as somebody whose default setting is to just be kind to everybody? So, uh, so I, that's a great question. I think, first of all, the stand-up world is, it's very competitive in terms of there are a lot of people with similar goals, sometimes striving for the same spot on a showcase or, you know, the same uh, booking of a TV set. But it's also not as cutthroat, I think, as people make it seem. It's competitive, but it's like we're all coworkers also. And so it's not a lot of, like, stepping on each other's faces. Or if there is, I have missed it and just fully ignored the realities of the world. <laughs> So that's part of it. But also, I think it's gotten, it's gotten easier as I've gotten more competent. And yeah. I feel like I can show that I'm good at the thing. And that kind of serves, like, I don't feel like you need to posture that much if you're, like, it, when people recognize you as a peer. So it's been a lot of, like, just trying to make sure that I was doing a good job at the job and then hoping that people get me right. And fortunately, a lot of the time, uh, people do. One of the things you write about in the book that I thought was a really interesting idea was trying to move from being a not bad person to being an actively good person. Can you explain what that means? Sure. A lot of what I was thinking about what kind of constructing the arc of this book was the idea that nice isn't always the same as good. Like it's nice to be polite and it's, you know, it's nice to hold the door, but sometimes there are people that it's like good to be rude to or good not to extend courtesy to. So I'm trying to figure out like how I can use kind of the privilege that I've been afforded to make things better and easier for people that have maybe been marginalized in the past and the present. And so it's that, just not being like, hey, I'm, I'm you know, I, I say please and thank you, that's enough. That's like, you know, a child's idea of goodness and how to go out into the world and like look to be helpful and look to be generous uh, and, and make difficult choices sometimes, if that's necessary, to, to be good. 
Okay, so you're still working on it, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'm a work in progress, as we all are. Yeah, exactly. Josh Gondelman, everyone. The new book is Nice Try, Stories from Best Intentions and Mixed Results. Thanks, Josh. Our musical guests this hour are a duo who met at a music festival in Winona, Minnesota, where they were both playing banjo in different bands. You know another one of those stories. Since then, they've played hundreds of shows, delighting audiences all over the country. Their latest album is Uncertain As It Is Uneven. This is The Lowest Pair on Livewire. Thank you. 
That's the lowest pair right here on Livewire. All right, that's going to do it for our show. Thank you so much to our guests, Josh Gondelman, Clyde W. Ford, Alex Borsuk, Caitlin Gerben, and the lowest pair. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Lagunitas Brewing Company, the Jupiter Hotel, and Fully. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketer. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House sound by Christopher Couture. Randy Hastings is our recording engineer, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio, Dan Reinhartz, and everybody here at the Neptune. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokolov. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Teresa Horn and Tom and Diane Forsyth of Portland, Oregon. For more information about the show, how you can get our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.